This is Michael Cox for the InCommon podcast. This is the third episode in our Future Fisheries Management series, which we are running in collaboration with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and the Center for Governance and Markets at the University of Pittsburgh. In this episode, I speak with Paige Roberts, a fisheries ecologist and geographic information systems expert, who is currently an independent consultant after working for nine years for the One Earth Future Foundation, an organization that specializes in finding sustainable solutions in fragile and conflict-affected settings. During her time with One Earth, Paige was closely involved with Project Bodwain in the country of Somalia. Through this project, Paige and her colleagues created a free online tool to map out Somali coastal resources and fishing activities to help a range of actors better understand interactions between human activities and the environment there. We discussed this project, as well as efforts of the foundation to promote the sustainability of coastal fisheries through a co-management approach. My favorite part of this part of our conversation was about a particular community that improved its lobster management in part with the use of better science about the fishery. This resonated with me in part because it is a departure from the more common experience I have seen with ongoing conflicts between fishers and fisheries scientists over the state of a natural resource. Like most of the other guests in this series, I met Paige at a workshop in Pittsburgh last year, and we discussed that towards the end of the interview, as well as a recent WTO agreement to end international fisheries subsidies which was one of the main topics of discussion during this meeting. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Paige Roberts. So Paige, thanks for joining me. We were joking before I hit the record button and it's taken a little while because of each of our scheduling issues, et cetera. So I'm glad that we got to make this work. Like I always do in these interviews, I like to start with what I call the origin story question. So when you look back on your career thus far, you know, how do you make sense of it? What are the key decision points or experiences that were formative for you in leading you down this path? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, Michael. I appreciate it. And I'm glad we finally, finally got together. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I have my origin story is a little funny because I grew up in Colorado. So I grew up in a landlocked state, but I always wanted to be a marine biologist, like a lot of kids <laughs> say. Um, and then I actually did it. So I just always loved fish and everything about the ocean. And I went to school in Florida at the University of Miami and did an undergrad there in biology and marine science. Um, and I really realized that, you know, I, I wasn't a marine mammal person. I'm a, I'm a fish person. I, I'm really into the biology of everything. So I, um, I, after that got a job as a technician at the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center. Um, so I spent seven years as a technician there working on fish and crabs in the Chesapeake Bay, a lot of ecology research, a whole variety of different surveys, um, long, long-term surveys, shorter projects. Um, and then I also got the chance to work with watermen. So like the fishermen of the Chesapeake Bay, um, in that position. And I really enjoyed that aspect of it, kind of putting the pieces together about why the fish are important to humans, as well as just for their biological value. Um, and after I, was there for seven years, it sort of became clear that it was 
there was not a lot of room for growth in that position. So um, I decided to leave and I actually, I moved home back to Colorado um, and thought I was going to join the Peace Corps because I really wanted some experience doing international work. Uh, I was really interested in sort of fisheries outside of the United States uh, after spending so long on the East Coast. So I thought I was going to do that. And then I got a position at One Earth Future Foundation instead, which is an international nonprofit that's based here in Colorado. And I ended up staying there for almost nine years. And I really got out of it what I what I wanted, which was experience in the international fisheries realm um, and a lot of a lot more on the, the fishing side of it than on the biology side of it. So I feel like I have sort of sort of both things working for me now, um, like the my biology background and then my fisheries um the application of the biology to the to fishing and more um you know human centered projects so can you tell me more about the one earth future foundation like what are its main goals and how are you contributing to those yeah um so i should say that i left that position in august um to sort of make a new career change and we can probably talk about that a little bit later um so i'm doing more sort of independent consulting now but i uh, I was at One Earth Future for nine years. And when I left, they were going through sort of a strategic shift. So <laughs> some of what I, what I, my experience was may not still be true about like their mission and goals anymore, but um, essentially it was a, they called themselves a peace building foundation. So they were looking to address the root causes of conflict um, in sort of conflict prone regions. Um, and my approach to that was through a program called Secure Fisheries that worked specifically uh, in Somalia and the Somali region doing um, building up local level fisheries management and, and incorporating some science and data collection into that to empower people to manage their own resources locally, as well as kind of facilitating the conversation between government and local communities um, since they were really trying to build up their uh, kind of governance capacity uh, over marine resources. Uh, the foundation as a whole does a whole lot of different things. <laughs> they have a, a group in Colombia that does like reintegration of FARC members, um, former FARC members. We had a group on working on nuclear nonproliferation. So there's a wide range of different approaches to getting to a more peaceful future. And what were some of your favorite aspects of the work that you did with respect to fisheries? Yeah, um, I, I really enjoyed learning about fishery systems outside of the United States, um, fisheries management systems. A lot of them are very different. Like the United States is... Uh, very uh, data heavy. <laughs> our our fisheries management in the United States is is very clear, very well regulated, um, and that makes it you know generally some of the more sustainable fisheries in the world. But around the world, there's there's not always that level of like science background and um, and knowledge to draw from. So for me, it was really interesting to go into a place that was sort of opposite of the United States, kind of trying to grow 
a new fisheries management system almost from scratch um, and and learning about sort of what goes into that and how it how it really impacts local people. Um, that was one of the most interesting things to me. And one of the things that I've really taken away from that position was that small scale fisheries and like coastal communities, their their opinions are are needed in government and they're not always listened to in like traditional governance formats for fisheries. It's a lot of sort of high level, you know, just trying to get scientists to tell people what to do and really like what I took away from my work in the Somalia region was that it it makes a huge difference to listen to people and what they need. And, and usually they can tell you what they need more than any scientist can. <laughs> so um, I sort of reversed my thinking about um, fisheries management and the most effective like means to do it um, and really, really enjoyed kind of putting the two pieces together, like the science um, how the science can help inform fisheries management, but how it should really come from like a bottom up perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that matches a lot of the kind of foundational, um, understandings in my field for sure that, that bottom up can't be, uh, shouldn't be crowded out by kind of top down technocratic expertise. Yeah. And I think, um, that's becoming much more of a popular like means toward to get towards like effective fisheries management. I mean, I think that if people don't think that regulations are going to work for them or they don't understand why, like they have to limit their fishing. Um, I mean, the, the goal is always for a future that has fish in it. Right. But that's not always clear when it's coming from a government authority or a, you know, ivory tower scientist or, people like that. So um, that was a really, really fun part of what I did. Paige, can you kind of paint a picture for the listener of what it felt like to be in this place? Are there certain stories that really resonate with you or really salient with you? What did it feel like to be there? What kind of, what did the place look like and feel like? Yeah. Um, I will say I, I didn't, I didn't live there. Um, I visited a few times in my, during my career um, at one of the future and uh, but I did have a lot of communication with Somalis. Um, we had Somali staff uh, on our team that were based in the country, and um, I did I did get to visit a few times. Um, and it's it's really it's kind of an amazing thing. I think um, being there, you could really feel like people's excitement about. Um, their, their like growing level of governance and the entrepreneurship that was happening there. There was a lot of, um, one of the, one of the other things that One Earth Future did, um, is provide small to medium sized loans to companies in the region. Um, and we, we were sort of, well, we called each other sister programs a lot, um, cause we worked sort of, um, next to each other. We didn't necessarily cross paths a lot, but sometimes they did have like fishing companies and there was a lot of uh, renewable energy going in. And um, I think people there were really proud of like the progress that they were making after so many years of conflict and civil war. And, you know, in the news, it's often about terrorism there and, you know, explosions and things. And I think that um, going there, it was really, it was really fun to see people that were so, so excited about their future and what was like what they were building there. Um, and in terms of fisheries, you know, people in the communities that I did get to talk to were, or usually through a translator, <laughs> um, they were 
really interested in growing, like growing their own knowledge about fishing and about the marine environment. Um, we did a lot of sort of science programming for them. We did, we would do like environmental education kind of classes. Um, we implemented data collection and people were really responsive to that um, in a way that was a little bit surprising to me in a place that like wasn't really used to that kind of thing. I think it can be a little scary to have someone come in and be like, we're going to collect data about you. <laughs> so uh, I would find were... that disconcerting if someone walked into my office and said that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But in most cases, I mean, I, I credit our field staff with this a lot that they were able to communicate well what the goals of it were and and really educate people about um why it's so important and and what it was going to do for them in the future um and people people really responded well to it um a lot of a couple of the communities so in one in one community on the east coast of of Puntland which is sort of the the northeast um state in the region uh we were working in a community on cooperative management so trying to sort of build up that conversation between government and local people um, and they were really pretty excited about it and took took it kind of into their own hands to manage their lobster fishery. It was a really important fishery for them uh, economically. They, they caught a lot of lobsters um, and they were realizing that the lobsters were starting to dwindle. They were getting smaller. Uh, and once once they had a little bit of the sort of environmental education and the background on why like what they needed to do to to stop that from happening and to continue to have a lobster population. They took it into their own hands and they implemented regulations locally kind of without without anybody else telling them to. And it was, um, I thought it was really inspirational to see that, that they connected the dots themselves. You know, they like put it all together and were like, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna do this now because we see that it's gonna be important for us in the future. It sounds like you're, what, you're, what you're talking about is what I would call co-management between a government and a community, but cooperative management makes just as much sense. Yep. It's also interesting that, you know, it's in my experience, it's not hard to find a fisher who's um, doesn't think very positively about the role of government and bureaucracy. So it's interesting in this case that it sounded like people, fishers were more amenable to uh, this kind of framing I'm also curious about this particular behavioral change because, you know, so much time and effort is spent trying to uh, gather knowledge about how that can be promoted and to actually try to promote it. And here we have this case where it is being promoted kind of surprisingly. Do you have a sense of why, I mean, was this community or set of communities kind of primed to do this in a way? I mean, maybe you don't have the historical knowledge to really fully analyze that, but it they weren't doing it before and there was something about this engagement that really enabled them to take the ball and run with it so to speak mm -hmm. do you have a sense of kind of how they were primed to use that language for this yeah i think so there was an existing cooperative there um, before we started working with them um so i think that kind of the base structure was there already for local management, but they weren't really doing much in the way of like fisheries management. It was, I think, more for like economic, um, you know, negotiating with the traders and especially like lobster middlemen and things like that. Um, we started working there 
um, about almost five years before the shift happened. So we started super basic going in and being like, what do you need? What is, what do you think we could provide for you? What do you think you need to get the government to sort of on, to be on your side and to communicate better with you? Um, and, and I will say that the, the political side of things in the Somalia region is really complicated. It's, uh, very fraught. <laughs> we spent a lot of time, or our field staff did on diplomacy a lot, just getting different ministries to, to get on board and understand why we were doing what we were doing. Um, but I think, I think people, it seemed to me as kind of an outsider perspective, you know, um, not being part of that community, that they could see the problem and when we started working with them on co-management, they could sort of start to see the solution and that and and feel a little bit more empowered to take that on themselves. Um, I think it's it's hard to go from a top-down system to saying like, oh, I can actually do something about this in my own community. If we all work together, we can make a difference. Um, and I, I think that a lot of the activities we did sort of worked towards that, like, giving them the tools to be able to um, say, okay, well, if we can't do this for the whole region, we're going to do it just in our, in our district, in our community, and hopefully we can get the rest of the region on board too. Um, and I think, you know, working with them on the, on co-management principles, on environmental education, um, showing them the data, um, we would, we gave it back to, we would analyze it. That was a lot of my job was the data management, data analysis, um, especially towards the end of my time there. And, you know, we would give them back the, the information that came out of their data collection and say, if you did these two things differently, maybe you would have more lobsters in like five years, things like that, you know? Um, so they, one of the things that they realized is that they were catching, well, through the data collection, they were catching a lot of females that were with eggs. So we spent some time on the education piece of that, why it's important to not catch those lobsters, <laughs> that if you were to put them back, you'll end up with a whole lot more lobsters than if you keep that one lobster. Um, so that was a lot of it was sort of, um, like, I think they were, they were sort of almost there already. They could see that there was an issue, but they didn't have the tools to solve it. And so I think part of that was a lot of what we were trying to do is sort of fill in the gaps and, and give them the, the sort of tools and the push that they needed to do it themselves. And I mean, they really, that community especially really like ran away with it, which was it made me really proud to see that, you know, the things, especially since I'm not there, I'm in Colorado, you know, analyzing the data and saying like, hey, maybe you should catch fewer, fewer egg laden lobsters. And then they did it. You know, that was a really um, validating thing to see. That sounds really gratifying. Yeah. Yeah. We could, we could all work together, even though we were, you know, oceans apart. It was, it was pretty, a pretty cool experience. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I heard from you, which is interesting, is instead of kind of waiting for other communities to do this, they acted as a first mover, mm -hmm. kind of saying, well, we're going to do this for us. There was enough of a sense of uh, kind of collective efficacy within that community that they didn't feel like they had to wait for other communities to do it with them. They weren't worried too much about other communities free riding what they were doing, which I think is one of the main obstacles to getting 
kind of the collective action oriented management of a resource off the ground in the first place. That's often the hardest part. Yeah. And I'm also reminded of the main lobster fishery, which again, in my field is kind of the most famous. And that was one of the, one of the earlier issues that came up for them is that they, they said, we have to stop folks from catching biologists who are working in the area, including Rob Senek, I believe were showing that older lobsters were much more fertile than mid-aged lobsters. And so they, they, and particularly, of course, egg-bearing females are the most significant bottleneck that you want to maintain mm -hmm. um, if you're going to maintain a population. And so it makes sense to me what you're saying that, and, and it's interesting also that, you know, biological expertise is playing an important role in coming to the same conclusion in this case as it did in that one. Yeah, it was a neat way for me to sort of combine the two worlds that I I have participated in, you know, I took what I learned from Chesapeake Bay crab ecology and invertebrate biology and all of that and got to apply it to this international fisheries system and fisheries management. Um, and it was, for me, a, a groundbreaking thing for, like, personally to see the science applied uh, in a way that really brought value to people, too. Yeah, coming full circle is a phrase that occurs to me. Yeah, 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 it did. It did sort of feel like that. Um, it was. That's really great. Yeah. Yeah. So, Paige, could you talk to me a bit about and you're going to have to help me with this pronunciation, the project Bodwain mm -hmm. that right. I know you also worked on. Can you describe that project and how you contributed to it? Sure. Um, yeah. So Project Bodwain is an online interactive mapping tool, um, and I developed it after some consultations with um, the Somali government and uh, some of the fishing communities. Although at that time it was, uh, when I first developed it, it was pretty early in secure fisheries um, life. <laughs> and so we were talking mostly to governments at that time and they, we kept, and to, and to international NGOs or like the UN and things like that. Um, and people kept saying, we just don't know what's happening in Somalia. Like we don't know what's going on there. We don't know what resources are there, how healthy they are. Um, so uh, at that time, I was really interested in um, geographic information systems or GIS. And actually since then I, I got a master's degree in GIS management through Salisbury University, partially because of of my interest sparked by this project. Um, so essentially I was like, there's gotta be some information out there, right? Like there's all of these new tools being developed and, and a lot of them have come so far in the last five years, you know, remote sensing of coral reefs and ocean parameters and things that you can, you can take from publicly available data and apply to a place like the Somali region where there's no, there's not a lot of data, like direct data coming out of there. So that was my goal was to sort of fill in some of the gaps that we were hearing about of what's happening <laughs> in the Somali region. So I basically collected all the data sources I could about um, marine habitats, commercially important fisheries, uh, and human uses of the Somali marine environment in a spatial sense. So I looked at like where there were reports of foreign fishing, um, where what domestic fishing is estimated to look like. I mean, at that point we had sort of, um, we had kind of general estimates, but we weren't collecting data 
from the region yet. Um, and I, when I put it all together, you could see kind of where there were places that were well-resourced and like one of the pieces of, of it that ended up being one of the more important things was uh, where there had been development projects uh, and like an influx of, of basically funding from, you know, organizations like the UN or international, other international NGOs and where there wasn't. And what I did was sort of put them, stack them on top of each other and say, okay, so this place, this city has a lot of resources. It has a lot of um, development projects already. And it has a lot of fisheries, so that's great. Like it's 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 on its way towards um, you know having some infrastructure and and fisheries management in place. But these other places, there's a lot of um, sort of coastal communities that were kind of overlooked because they were smaller, they were hard to get to. Um, access in Somalia is really difficult. <laughs> a lot of dirt roads and just really, really tricky to get to some of these fishing communities. So um, I looked at, you know, where the biggest fishery, fishing communities were, what the resources looked like around it from the public data that I could find, and then said, you know, maybe this is going to be a good place to direct some of our efforts in co-management and um, trying to build up that fisheries management as a whole for the country. You know, our efforts might be worth more in a place that doesn't have current funding and, and current projects happening. Um, and that's actually how we landed on uh, working in the, the coastal community with the lobsters. It's um, Bender Bela, it's called. Um, that was one of the places where I realized, you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, a lot of resources there, but not a lot of, of um, funding for, for work there. So um, that was kind of, that was, that ended up becoming what it was about, but really, you know, people, <laughs> I presented it at a, uh, conference in Somaliland, um, in Hargeisa and people were super interested in the map. Um, I had a lot of people, I had a sort of monitor and a computer set up to show what the map looked like and how you could turn on and off layers. Um, and you can, you can still find it, it's on projectbadwayne.org or it's on the Secure Fisheries website. So people come over to my station and start zooming in to find their town and, and looking at like what, what fish were around it. And then they'd be like, that doesn't live there. And I'd be like, okay, well, I'll, I'll take it off the map, <laughs> you know? So it, was, it ended up being a great sort of engagement tool um, for working with people and, and just showing what is possible even in places where people are saying we just don't know anything like you actually can know can know a lot especially nowadays with like the technology and how far it's come and how big is the community so where you're working with the lobster governance how big is Bender Bela it's uh I would call it I think it's a it's kind of a it's a small community for a fishing community, it's kind of mid-sized for the Somali region. Um, okay. It's a Banderbela is a district, so the main town is called Banderbela, but it also includes some smaller like settlements, uh, mostly just like fishing settlements. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Would you recommend the kind of GIS training that you got to someone who's considering dabbling in GIS and kind of adding it to their skill set? Yeah. Um, for me, GIS makes a lot of uh, a lot of data makes sense. I'm a really visual person. <laughs> I'm I'm not necessarily a hard numbers person. I like to see it. Um, so seeing it on a map really makes things make sense to me. 
And now, uh, you know, I think it used to be, there used to be a pretty high barrier to entry on GIS. You had to take a lot of training and the software was uh, not very intuitive. It was a little hard to use, but now there's a couple of softwares out there that are much easier to use. The tools are much more obvious. Um, and with like some basic knowledge, you can go and make a map of whatever you want. Um, and there's so much, so many uh, resources online, even fisheries aside, you know, you can find maps of your town, maps of, uh, you know, trees in your city. I mean, that's like something that exists, you know, so I think it's a, it's a great tool to add to to make things make more sense. Uh, and that was one of the, that was the coolest thing that I saw when people were like, oh yeah, there's my town on this map on a computer where they like, people really related to it in a way that I think, you know, a graph doesn't necessarily communicate mm -hmm. <laughs> as easily. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So I, I super recommend doing a, an intro course or an online tutorial. I mean, there's so many now um, that you could you could jump in and get the basics down and you know start making some pretty simple maps and move up from there if you want to do more. I might ask you to share one afterwards to put in the show notes as well for interested listeners. Yeah, sure. Okay. So moving forward, Paige, you've um moved, you've left One Earth Foundation and you mentioned earlier in this interview that you're starting a new independent consulting role. Can you talk about this change, the motivations for it, and how you're thinking about your path moving forward? Yeah. Um, so I had been at Warm and Future for almost nine years, um, and I just felt like it was time to do something different, kind of. Um, I wanted to stick with ocean research and um, fisheries science, but I also wanted to remain in Colorado <laughs> where I live. So um, those two things don't always go together. <laughs> yep. um, so I started, you know, sort of talking to people and, um, you know, working my network, as they say, <laughs> um, and realizing that my skills could be transferred to other similar projects like what we were doing in, in the Somali region with One Earth Future, but in different places on some different topics. Um, and so far, so it's only been a few months now, but um, so far it's been really fun. You know, I've gotten to do a couple different projects that still use the same same skills, same background, uh, same science, uh, and some GIS, and um, but apply it to different places. And that's been really, really fun and, and rewarding for me to kind of branch out from, from just, you know, Western Indian Ocean, Somali region work, um, which, as I've said, was very rewarding, but I just needed, wanted to, you know, spread out a little, see what else mm -hmm. is up. Yeah. So it sounds like a definite benefit is kind of a, a new experiences, maybe a larger diversity of experiences along some dimensions. Have you experienced any trade-offs? I know that some people, when I've talked about, oh, maybe I would take the consulting route. Some people say, well, you also have to like hustle to like make it happen for yourself. You you eat what you kill. Has mm -hmm. that been an aspect of it? But it sounds like it's going well for you. So, but is that something that, that was on your mind when you kind of initially made the shift? If you don't mind talking about that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It was on my mind and I don't mind talking about it at all. I, um, I was really nervous <laughs> to leave. Uh, and I had applied to jobs in other places too. You know, I was sort of working all the angles, but I ended up getting pretty lucky, I think. Um, and 
I connected with people that, you know, needed my skill set and the timing worked out right. <laughs> and um mm-hmm. but yeah, it's definitely it's a little it's a little daunting to think like, oh, in January, I don't actually know if I'm going to have work (laughs) and if Mm -hmm. I don't, what am I going to do? Um, but you know, I keep, I keep in touch with the people that I, I think can get me can, you know, bring contracts to me. And, um, it's, it's definitely different. Um, I, I kind of like the haphazard nature of it. Uh, you know, I worked on a project about fisheries in Alaska for a private company. And then I started working on a UN project on illegal fishing in the Philippines. So it's kind of all over the place. And to me, that's fun. I get to learn about new, new fishery systems all the time. I think that may not be fun for everybody. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've really enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, I think the flip side is that you don't, you don't really get to like dig in too much on anything. So I wouldn't call myself an expert now in Philippines fisheries. That's definitely not true, but I did, I, I did my crash course, you know? Yeah. But in some ways you're becoming a new kind of fisheries expert. This is something that I think is really undervalued is the kind of, it's so easy to think that the way you become an expert is to dig into one particular place or theme. And of course that's not inaccurate, but you can, you can sacrifice kind of comparative knowledge. So you now everything you knew about um, the lobster fishery in Somalia, you can compare it to these other places, right? Yeah. And comparing uh, your experiences or one place with another is one of the most important ways to understand what you initially knew. I mean, do you agree with that? Or how do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I do agree with that. And I, I think, um, I think you're right that it is kind of an undervalued thing, you know, and um, in some ways, it's, it's harder, right? Because you're starting from scratch in these places that like I have no experience. I've never even been to the Philippines. Right. <laughs> Again, they hired me to do GIS work, you know, with remote sense data that I don't I I haven't I haven't even seen what I'm working on, but I can I can do the crash course. I can I can get myself up to speed and then I can apply the same the same analysis techniques, the same background that I was using in the Somali region um where I do have did have a lot of experience and dug into. So yeah, I think I think that's been it's been really valuable and it's sort of changed the the way that I can the way that I think about projects, you know? I I think it's easy to feel like you're starting from scratch, but you know, I have the experience to fall back on that I can apply even if it's not exactly the same system or not exactly the same um governance or whatever, you know, I can I can sort of say, "Oh, well, I did this in Somalia, I can do something similar over here." Yeah. Right. It sounds like one of the bottlenecks to comparative work, if you're actually trying to formally compare different places, is this won't surprise you to hear me say this, right? It's just all the informal connections that you need, all the social capital, all all the kind of social sunk costs that have to be borne before you can actually do what you're going to do in a place with your field work. And it sounds like given the niche that you've carved out for yourself, you don't face those same sunk costs. You can kind of port your skill set from place to place, given how you're contributing to these projects. Yeah, I think so. But I do think there's there's a lot of value in the like the the connections to people that you set up in a in a longer term <laughs> position for sure. Um mm-hmm. and I've I have found that a little bit 
tricky in some ways. Um, for example, this project I'm working on about illegal fishing in the Philippines, I didn't really have connections to people there who could provide me with data or who could give me like anecdotal accounts of what was happening. Um, but then the other side of that is that my research is completely unbiased. I don't have any mm. from government people. I'm using what I'm reading mm -hmm. online and the what the data is showing me to make some, you know, kind of educated conclusions about what might be happening. Um, and, you know, I, to me, I see it as sort of like a first step, you know, it was like, I went in blind, I did this work and now you can validate it. <laughs> right. And if yeah. you want me to redo it, I can redo it with more information. Um, I'm trying to, trying to see the, the bright side of that and sort of use the lack of connections to my advantage a little bit. Sure. Makes sense. Um, so my final question before chatting about the workshop where we met is about, um, these three letters, PhD <laughs> and, you know, I'm biased and it's, it's easy because I have one and I'm surrounded by people who have them and it's easy mm -hmm. to kind of normalize that. And I don't think that getting a PhD is necessarily higher and better. So I don't want this question to sound loaded as if like, well, when are you going to do this thing that of course you're going to do? Yeah. Um, I'm curious though, how you've thought about that as something I've heard that an in international work in particular, PhDs hold a certain cachet, mm -hmm. um, particularly at places like the world bank. Um, is this a route that you've considered if yes, I've kind of already asked the question and I'm kind of just stumbling to the end, but have you thought about this? Why or why not? How do you think about it as an option for you? Well, I've certainly thought about it. I think most people who choose research as a career <laughs> are forced to think about it at some point. Um, it took me 11 years to decide I wanted to do a master's degree after my <laughs> undergrad. Okay, so we're, get we're getting there. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Yeah. So I, um, I did consider it. Uh, I think I enjoy school. I think it would be in some ways valuable, but my experience and what I've seen in the jobs that I've had is that the people with the PhDs end up sitting at a desk a lot, um, writing for funding, um, managing people, which I do actually kind of enjoy, but I think you, you, you kind of like, uh, priced yourself out of some of the positions that I actually really enjoy doing. So some of the mm. more like research, like, you know, the GIS projects, the actually going into the field and doing some work. Um, I feel like that, that you kind of leave that behind with a PhD. And I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who would say, no, you're wrong. <laughs> you can still do that with a PhD. But what I that's what I've seen in my experience and the people with PhDs that I've worked with is that that's sort of the trade-off is, um, yeah, you, you have a degree, you may get a bigger, bigger position, more money, all of that, but um, you sort of have to leave behind some of the research and the actual work that, you did to get there. So to me, it's, it doesn't feel like a great use of my time and energy. Um, I think like, I'm pretty happy in, in what I'm doing. And I'm not sure I would be in the positions that I would be qualified for with a PhD. So yeah, I've definitely thought about it a lot. Um, but 
I don't at this point really don't feel like it's for me. And I also feel like um, we place a lot of value on higher education and that tends to leave out some of the people that haven't had those opportunities, but have tons of great experience and um, have, you know, are, are very smart in different ways than academic smart. Um, and to me, that, that experience is also incredibly valuable. And I think, um, I hope that people can see that value in me <laughs> without a PhD. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, yeah, I would even say that, right, you might be academic smart, and maybe it's just a PhD doesn't make sense for you despite that, right? It doesn't have to be that it's like, oh, I don't, I have less of this particular thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it, it, I've kicked it around a few times. I thought about it when I was thinking about leaving my position at Warner Future and what was kind of come next. I'm like, well, I could, I could, I could go get a PhD, but I, I ultimately just decided that it wasn't, it wasn't the commitment that I wanted to make. <laughs> yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Um, so Paige, I want to conclude by just getting your thoughts on the workshop that we both attended. So this is a workshop held at the University of Pittsburgh, um, co-hosted by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, as well as the Center for Governance and Markets at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, and it was a workshop on fisheries policy broadly, but also focused on a particular WTO agreement. Um, then we can get into if if you want to, but I'm, I'm curious about what your motivations were for attending the workshop and kind of what your hopes are with respect to it moving forward. Yeah. Um, I got the invitation to the workshop kind of out of the blue. Um, I guess the organizers had read my, some of my work online. Maybe they had seen Project Bodwin online. I'm not really sure, but um, I, I was pretty excited by the, the, sort of multidisciplinary approach that they were taking to the issue. Uh, I don't specialize in the WTO. I didn't, I didn't, I knew about the agreement before the workshop, but I hadn't really dug into it very much. It wasn't super relevant to the work we were doing in small scale fishing in Somalia. Uh, but then I realized that that's the perspective that I can bring, right? Is the sort of small scale fisheries, um, you know, developing country, conflict country, kind of um background that I had. So that was that was kind of why I was excited to be a part of it was to bring that perspective. Um, and then once we were there meeting everybody, it was it was such an interesting mixture of people. <laughs> it was, you know, there were economists, there were commercial fishing people, there were research scientists, other people doing small scale fisheries, but in totally different contexts like Alaska, um, which is, you know, similar but different <laughs> to what we were doing in Somalia. Um, so yeah, I, I thought it was, the conversation was really interesting and it ended up not just being about the WTO, which I think, well, to me made it, I guess, more well-rounded of a conversation. Um, we talked about, you know, technology and tracking fisheries. And then we talked about how, international fishing agreements can be, can learn from small scale fishing agreements and vice versa. Um, so it was a really unique perspective and a fun, it was so discussion oriented. I really liked that about it. It was, it, it wasn't anybody talking at us the whole time. It was a real like collaboration and discussion, which was really fun for me. So yeah, coming out of it, I mean, I, I feel like there's already been quite a few published pieces that have come out. Um, and I, so 
mine is one of them. And I was able to revise it after the workshop because we wrote we wrote a draft before to share with everybody. And then after the workshop, I revised it and really connected sort of the WTO to the small scale fisheries work. Um, and and that was pretty fun for me to like see how they could come together. Um, and and thinking think because they see they feel pretty separate when you when you just read about each one, but um, they actually do you know overlap in some ways that were was pretty interesting to research. So yeah, I agree too. I really it, it just kind of felt fresh to me. Everyone there was like a nice energy and people from different perspectives were kind of openly engaging with each other. Yeah, felt really nice. I would I would love to continue that conversation with with the people there because it was I I found I got a lot out of it actually. So Paige, I actually had forgotten that I put this in the end of my uh, interview guide for us, but now that I see my last question that I've written here, I do want to ask it. Yeah. Um, what do you think good governance of fisheries looks like? We've talked a bit about that um, in terms of co-management in particular, but what do you think good governance of fisheries looks like based on your own experiences and the discussions you've had with other experts? Oh man, you saved the hardest one for the end. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's, but it, <laughs> I was so excited when I remembered that I wanted to ask it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it looks, it looks a little different everywhere, but I do think there's tons of value in participatory approaches to fisheries governance. So not just coming from a top-down approach, that bottom-up approach that we were talking about before to me is critical. I mean, I think I think all of us have some experience in that in one way or another, not necessarily in fisheries, right? But like if you've worked at an organization and you feel like your voice isn't being heard um, and things are happening that are out of your control and decisions are being made and you feel like they're unfair, um, you know, that's also happening in fisheries and, and you know, when laws are made and regulations are made and people aren't considered um, the actual people that it impacts the most. Um, so I think to me, that's sort of step one is like what's actually happening in fishing communities, um, whether those are super high tech commercial fisheries or like small scale artisanal fisheries. Um, I think you have to include the people that are doing the work and whose lives depend on it really um, in the conversation uh, that the disconnect I think is what hasn't worked in a lot of places. So that would be probably my number one thing soapbox about <laughs> fisheries management and fisheries government governance. Um, and then I think there's, there's definitely a place for science too. I, um, to me, what is valuable is taking the science and and simplifying it and showing how it can apply to people and what they need. So, um, you know, a fisherman, most fishers are not going to read a academic paper, right? But the thing in the academic paper might really apply to what they're working on or what their what their livelihood depends on. So, I think there's there's a role for people like me to kind of fill that like communication gap too of, um, you know, the science, the biology, the ecology, and then how it relates to what's actually happening in the world. Um, and that's, that's an evolution, I think, um, for me as, as the, as the science person, you know, I think it's, uh, I learn a lot from 
hearing what fishers have to say or and government what what the priorities of government are how they align or don't align with um fishing communities um and then i can sort of take that and say well there's this piece of science that we can fit in here and maybe it'll get us a little closer to a collective goal so that's maybe an esoteric way to no, that's a great answer. Question. <laughs> I mean, I liked your early point, Paige, about comparing what happens in fisheries with what happens in many other systems that many of us take part in, because mm -hmm. I think that's that's really helpful and helps kind of drive it home. We've all had some of the same feelings that fishers have, even though our identities are in many ways very different. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I think it's a helpful connection to make. Yeah, I mean, in the end, it's it's their job, it's their livelihoods, right? And we we've all we all have livelihoods, we all have jobs, we all have, you know, something that we could compare to their experience. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.